Uh, the start of the week and a busy old day on the radio. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. You shouldn't have to come on national radio and tell your story because mm. it's too painful. You shouldn't have to do it. But unfortunately, we live in a world where you, you have to do it. So I'm, I apologise. I do apologise for that. She said, are you ever going to settle down? And I said, Granny, I don't know if you know, but I like fellas. And she said, I know that. She said, but as long as you love yourself as much as you love the other person, because Jesus is going to love you anyway. If you saw her, Joe, it was heartbreaking to look at her. She was just, you know, she was just like a little rag. You know, the poor little thing was absolutely pathetic looking at her. So unfortunately, I had to make the decision to let her go. And we'll start with the Ray Darcy show and the skin condition EB, that's Epidermalitis Bullosa Awareness Week. Claudia Scanlon and her mum, Liz Collins, were catching up with Ray. I first met my next guest when she was just three years old. Now she's 18 and she joins me with her mother to mark EB Awareness Week. Uh, Claudia, good afternoon. Liz, good afternoon. Good afternoon. I can't believe it's 15 years, Claudia, since I met you. I know. Down in Killashee House in Nace. Mad, tiny. Yeah. Tiny little thing. Yes, and there was a very young uh, Johnny Sexton there as well, wasn't Very it? young. I actually probably don't even remember that, to be honest. Do you not? No. Because no. your mother was telling me recently that uh, he, I had met him on the way in and he had just told me in confidence that he just got engaged. <laughs> so I was asked to say a few words and I said, and congratulations to Johnny who's just got engaged and <laughs> I wasn't supposed to tell anybody. So anyway, sorry, hopefully I won't put my foot in it today. Anyway, great to see you. So, um, you're probably sick of explaining EB, but but would you do it for our listeners one more time, please? Of course. Yeah. Um, so I was born with a genetic skin condition called epidermolysis bullosa. Everyone calls it EB because no one can say that word. Um, so I am missing the gene collagen 7, which creates collagen. Um, and collagen knits all your layers of skin together. So without that, they're rubbing off each other constantly, which creates wounds and blisters, etc., so it makes my life my life a living hell, you know, and every aspect of my life is affected by it. Right. Uh, and you, I see your arms are bandaged, your whole body is bandaged. Yeah, 80% covered. 80%? Yeah. And those dressings have to be changed how often? Um, three times a week, but all, pretty much every day as well. Um, I have my large ones, which can take up to four hours, um, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, by my wonderful nurses, which makes it, 10 times easier um, and then I have to have a, like some sort of bandage done every day whatever's been damaged through the night it needs to be fixed before I go to, mm. to college Now I suppose back when you were three and, and up into six there was a sort of a novelty because yeah. you know you were going to all these things mm-hmm. in Killishy House and Farmley and uh, although life was pretty rough um, it was still a little bit of a novelty and, and I believe in the last couple of years it's sort of dawned on you in yeah, a way. It has, yeah. So so talk to me a little bit about that. Um, well, my condition is a progressive condition, so it will get worse over time and I probably will get worse than I am now. Um, but I think in the last two years, it has really just hit me at how severe my condition is and how much is it is holding back what I can do. Um, and it, it, it's been a real struggle the last two years. I... I have infection after infection and it wipes me out entirely like the two most like important years of my school life I missed 
like at least one day a week, if not more. And it was so crucial and vital for me to get in that study time um, and the academics that I needed. But it couldn't happen because I just physically couldn't get out of bed. Mm. And I'm still struggling with them to this day. I'm trying to manage them as best as possible. But it, it really, it it shakes me as a person and it... Each time it happens, it takes a little piece of it with me, and mm. you know, it's 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 hard, you know. Mm. Are, are you in pain now? No, no, but I'm on high doses of multiple painkillers, right. so without all the, them, all the time. Yeah, for I uh, they wear off about four hours every time, so I have to take them up to three or three times a day. Right. Yeah. And Ray asked Liz about Claudia becoming eighteen. I suppose. Claudia hitting 18, it's it's big deal, isn't it? Huge. Yeah. Yeah, big milestone. Yeah. Yeah, time to reflect. Yeah, mm. because Claudia, you're an adult now. I know, I don't feel like <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I'm sure lots of people would say I'm not an adult as well. No, but, but you can vote and you can have a drink if you so wish and, yeah. and, and other things. Um, take us back to you know when, when Claudia was born. Claudia, your first child? Yeah, she's yeah. my only child because of the genetics yeah. of it. Yeah. So, yeah, it would be 25% risk on every pregnancy thereafter. So that opened up a whole other can of worms. Um, and obviously at this stage, I'm way too old. So <laughs> we parked that car. Um, yeah, I suppose average couple from the Liberties, myself and Gary, uh, just knocking around, going out with each other, decided to get married. Just really, really a natural progression in life. Um, and... You know, getting married kind of hand in hand went with that, like, let's have a child. It wasn't overthought or anything like that. And you you genuinely believe that, you know, everything's going to be OK, you know. Um, but I often think of my wedding vows in Denora Avenue Church, like, for better, for worse and sickness and in health. Did I really realise what I was actually saying, you know? So we had Claudio in the first year of marriage. Um, Gary is a dormant carrier of a gene and I'm a dormant carrier of a gene, which we wouldn't have known about. And... Uh, planned our first baby, had Claudia and it was automatically, it was a, when she was born, it was a suspected case of epidermolysis bullosa. So we waited a month. She was biopsied and we went through the procedure, not really understanding. We were kind of being spoon fed at that stage. What was kind of like, how serious can a mm. skin condition be? And then within a month, the results came back to say that she had got recessive dystrophic epidermolysis bullosa, which would be one of the worst living forms, if not the worst living form of EB. So total and utter shock, turned our world upside down upside down no 20 years married this year we were and when I look back at it I actually uh, I haven't been living I'm just existing I don't remember an awful lot of it it's just every day getting up just going through the motions just trying to get through as best as you can You've heard this before Claudia haven't you because I'd say our listeners are going that must be very difficult for Claudia to hear It is hard and it's hard to hear my mother say that because a mother's role is to look after their child so to a certain extent where my additional needs she shouldn't have to look after. Mm. And this is one of the main focuses today and around this year's EB Awareness Week is the lack of nurses and the lack of carers because I'm not 10 year old, but she's getting to a certain age as is <laughs> as am I where we don't want to do that to each other. It's a very vulnerable role I'm in. And I'm I'm very vulnerable when someone else comes in to do that. It shouldn't be my mother's job at this day and age. And that's the thing, isn't it? Because uh, as a parent, you want to take care of your child. That's a very natural thing. But part of you taking care of Claudia over the years was 
inflicting pain. Yeah. And that's that's I like I just can't get my head around that. Mm. I think that was the turning point for me. I kind of managed for three or four years initially. It's like you handed the baby and you just say, you just got to do this. You just move forward to either sink or swim, isn't it? We chose to swim. And uh, yeah, I managed, you know, the work life balance. You know, I was only a new wife. Just everything was just all so new. And it wasn't like, is there an expectation around when you have a child? We didn't have anything to benchmark that became our normal. And as I said, we did it for three to four years. But Claudia then became aware of what I was going to do to her. So she started to fight me even before we got in the door from school. And the rail began then. So I suppose, yeah, I suppose one of the days uh, just got really so bad that I just held her down. I had to cut the clothes off her to get her into the bath. So I know when Gary came in from work, I literally just, I was I couldn't get up off the bathroom floor. I, I do, and I had post-traumatic stress, I suppose, because Claudia would get a mantra in her head, like, leave me alone. And she would scream that for four hours solid. So I'd, my managing, my coping mechanism was I'd go up into my head and I'd just do what I had to do and get through it and then collapse after it. You know, and that was, that was every day for a long, long time with no supports. So I had to hold my hand up. It felt like a bit of a failure. But the realisation, like, how am I going to sustain this? How am I going to get through the rest of Claudia's life managing this level of care that I couldn't, that EB was actually going to see me down? Mm. If, if it wasn't Claudia, it was it was going to take me and, and my family and our whole family unit. So I held my hand up and, you know, I started like, and no one gives you guidelines how to approach our health system or anything. You start a journey of learning and understanding where you can and where you can't go. And I went on that journey. And I fought long and hard, you know, I got a lot of no's. I got a lot of, yes, we believe you do deserve the support, but we don't have the resources. We don't have the funding. Um, and then I suppose I got a bit feisty and I stopped like, as I'm not going to take no for an answer here. I was trying to salvage my family. Yeah, it, it's, and I said it to you outside, you shouldn't have to come on national radio and tell your story because mm. it's too painful. You shouldn't have to do it. But unfortunately, we live in a world where you, you have to do it. So I'm, I apologise. I do apologise for that. Liz Collins and Claudia Scanlon from The Ray Darcy Show. And on Morning Ireland, a generous donation from the family of actor Richard Harris. I only wilted that green grass, that lovely green grass, and you want to take it away from me. And in the sight of God, I can't let you do that. Can't you find another field? Another field. Jesus, you're as far in here as that yank. Another field. Are you blind? Those hands, do you see those hands? Those rocks. It was a dead thing. Don't you understand? This is the widow's field. That's the law. The common law. There's another law. Stronger than the common law. What's that? The law of the land. That's the late actor Richard Harris playing Bull McCabe in the 1990s film The Field. Now his family have donated his archives to University College Cork. It spans 50 years of his life from the time he left Limerick in the 1950s to pursue his acting career, which included the groundbreaking This Sporting Life in 1963, for which Harris received Best Actor at the Cannes Film Festival, right up to his appearance in the Harry Potter movies in 2002, and includes Harris's personal creative writing, including poetry as well as letters to and from his children, 
private notes and memorabilia from film sets that Harris kept as mementos. Here's Richard Harris's son, Jared, explaining why they decided to donate the collection to UCC. After he died, we pulled together all of his personal effects and it went into storage. And it just sat in storage for a long time. And um, I, want, I wanted, I didn't want it to just sit in storage until, you know, eventually someone, I, in my mind, would just bung it away or something. And I, I wanted it to go somewhere where people would care about it and look after it and preserve it and archive it and, um, and value it for the record that it is. So, um, and I wanted it to go to Ireland. Um, I wanted it to go to a university in Munster. And, um, and Cork was the perfect place for it. A lot of the programs that, that Cork uh, provide they mirror his interests in his life and in his career. So it is a perfect fit. That's the actor Jared Harris, son of Richard Harris. Cronon O'Divlin is head of collections at UCC and joins us now. Cronon, good morning. Thanks for taking our call today. Good morning. Uh, like many a man, Richard Harris was, uh, was some hoarder, despite living in a hotel for nearly 20 years. But reading about this collection in newspapers this morning, as Fiona was telling us earlier, including a Get Well card, which he received shortly before his death, written in the slightly scrawly handwriting of a then-teenager, Daniel Radcliffe. You have a fantastic collection on your hands here. T- tell us more about what's in there. It's an absolutely amazing collection. And it, it begins... Um, really with his his family life in Limerick. So there's a lot of material, um, photographs, and even family history uh, documents relating to the Harris family in Limerick and their origins indeed in Wales. And then it continues from his earliest appearances on stage in in London. There's there's letters back to his parents uh, mentioning Arthur Miller, uh, Marilyn Monroe and indeed uh, telegrams from his, his father and from well-wishers as he makes his first appearances on stage in London. And then we have a, a complete collection of stills, photographs that span his entire uh, acting career from the early films in the 1950s right up until the Harry Potter films in 2002. So it's it's an absolutely astounding archive. And as, as you mentioned, it covers the three primary areas of his career, film, music, which many people forget about. He had a, a remarkable musical career in the late 60s and early 70s, and indeed theatre. And that matches, as Jared said, exactly with the school of film, music and theatre that we have in UCC. Do you, uh, and will people, do you think, regard Richard Harris differently when they learn more about him from this collection? I think they absolutely will. And as a, as a librarian, uh, I've, I suppose the most... Uh, unbelievable thing about the collection is the unexpectedness of the material um, that, that, that it includes. As I said, he, he kept things that were dear to him, things that meant a lot. And some of those artefacts are very fragile, so that he had to look after them with a little bit of care. But it really shows uh, a multifaceted, complex, creative and determined uh, individual. And I suppose thinking back to the, the period that he went to London, he, he really was a, a flag bearer for, for Irish people abroad in that he was kind of an interloper into that theatre world in, in London. He came with a different accent. He was from a different background to, to many of the other actors that were 
were on stage at that time. So he had to fight his way to make a success of his life. And I think students of, of theatre and film studies will really find that inspirational and a, a remarkable uh, element of the collection. And Cronin, when will the public, when will we be able to see what you have? The first uh, exhibition, the first public site of the collection will be in the Hunt Museum, museum in Limerick, in, in Harris's hometown. And we, we hope that that will be in 2024, 2025. Obviously, schedules have been put out of sync a little with, with the pandemic, but we're working already very hard with the Hunt to make that happen as soon as possible. Cronin O'Divlin from Morning Ireland. And in the morning, Brendan Courtney was talking to Navin-based businesswoman Elizabeth Oakes. She's just come up with an ingenious product inspired by her young son, Henry. Basically, I have five children under the age of six and we have a farm, we have a very busy lifestyle and my husband is very involved in GAA and sports in general. Yes. So during the summer, I was actually away on my holidays and my husband, Connor brought two of the kids to Tinnahealy show because Sorry, one was I, Elizabeth, like, Elizabeth, you have five kids, a farm and you went on holiday and left your husband with the farm and the five kids. You're <laughs> my kind of woman. Keep going. <laughs> yeah, he's a great man, thank God. Um, and he, we went, he went to Tinnahealy show with the two eldest kids. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them was competing in the Mounted Games competition on the pony and my other little son, Henry, who was four at the time, wandered off so, and got lost. So just paint the picture. The Tinnahealy show is an agricultural show. So it's very, lots of people there. Very, very busy, yeah? Yeah, it's a huge show. Okay. It's, yeah. Apart from the Ploughing Championships, I'd say it's nearly the second biggest show in the country. So yeah, lots of people. And Henry wandered off and got lost. Oh. And then it was coming out over the intercom. We have a little boy here called Henry. Henry's looking for Dada because he doesn't know Connor's name. Yeah, and can Dada please come to the main announcement stand to collect Henry? Yeah. So every course, every every parent's nightmare, right? Oh my God, absolutely. And it was lucky I was on holidays, and they only rela- relayed the story to me later <laughs> that evening. <laughs> so then, yeah. So then, so they obviously we found Henry, and he's home safe, and he did find Dada. So then, what happened next? Where did the idea come from then? You. Started thinking, like I know years ago when we'd go to the RDS horse show, mum used to write our name and our number on our arm in a permanent marker just in case we got lost. Did she? She did, yes. So I just thought there has to be something that I can put on the children so that if we're going to an agricultural show, even we went to centre parks or GAA matches, that they have. Mommy and Daddy's number, or whoever's number, and maybe any medical conditions yeah. on on their being, so that if they were to be found, that all the information is readily available. Brilliant. And I went searching, and there was just nothing available. So when I couldn't sleep one night, I just went down an absolute rabbit hole and decided I'm going to make something for the kids. Now, before you tell us what you made, I just remembered when we were kids, my father had a special whistle for us, which as we became teenagers, we'd say, stop whistling us like dogs. But he would literally go, and he could do it really loud. And we'd know he was looking for us. So we'd, he, it was his way of calling. So parents obviously do have these little tips and tricks of trying not to lose their kids in busy areas. Like Christmas Day, you know, Christmas Eve on Henry Street or Grafton Street. All, you can, yeah, I can just see it now. So then you sat down and you invented what? It's called the emergency contact.ie tags. So basically, these are waterproof 
basically indestructible nearly tags and they have a tiny microchip in the tag. And on that microchip, we can store a profile. So I have, let's say, a profile of Henry and he has no medical conditions and it says, hi, I'm lost. Please call one of the numbers below. And on the profile, the numbers can be input in like a clickable telephone number or in a WhatsApp clickable number. So once Go on. Henry gets found, yeah. anybody can just tap their phone to the back of the tag and it uses NFC technology, the same technology that's used in contactless payments. It uses that technology and automatically the profile will pop up on the person's phone. So, And then they can just click straight through and call the parent. That's amazing. So I, I when I first read the idea, I, I thought you probably inserted it under their skin, but you don't. It's just a tag that you put on their wrist or around their neck. Is that right? Yeah, it's a tag. I have a wristband and I also have like a small tag and a larger tag. They're like um, keychains nearly, you know. So you can put them on your animals, like on dogs and cats, and you can put them on objects as well. Um, I have one, the small tag I've created so that you can put it also on your keys and it works in the little trolley as a token also. So it's a kind of multiple purposes. But then if somebody were to find your keys, they can just tap the tag on your key and call you to say that they've found them. That's that's brilliant. It's brilliant. And also I li- I like that I read I had a look at your website and read that if you've got if you're caring for somebody who maybe have has dementia or learning difficulties or difficult communicating, that's a really good use of it as well, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Older people with dementia and the tags are yellow so they're very visible um and they're about five centimetres squared. So, you know, they're quite visible. If you're afraid somebody might take them off, I put them through the little zips on the kids' clothing or through like a buttonhole. Um, to ensure that they can't take them off, yet they're very, very visible. And on the tag, it says, tap to the back of your phone. So that if someone were to see it... Now, my kids are well-versed when we're going anywhere. They'll just say to... Please unlock your phone and tap my tag to get Mammy's number. Elizabeth Oakes talking to Brendan Courtney in the morning. And on the live line, a very upset Helen called Joe about the puppy she bought from an online ad. Deeply upset is absolutely not the word. Devastated, I would use. I've gone through such a dreadful, dreadful week. I had a little Yorkshire Terrier myself. Okay. And he died suddenly in March of this year. Okay. And I have been spending so much time going on... Uh, you know, different rescues to see if I could get a young enough one and it seems to be all older dogs that are available. Okay. But finally, two weeks ago, I went on to a site online and saw this absolutely adorable little litter of puppies that were for sale. Yeah. So contacted the owner and he said that, you know, I read the ad and you know, the ad said that they were 10 weeks old, they were fully uh, vaccinated, they were healthy, happy and ready to go to their new homes and would only be given to good homes. Okay. So I contacted the owner, as I said, and uh, he agreed to send me a video of the puppy that I liked with mummy the next morning. Yeah. Which he duly did. And they, then we arranged, you know, and I think with Joe, 
I talk about falling book line and sinker. I really did. And I know it was the most stupid thing to do. Uh, I know that. Yeah. But in hindsight, you know, you do these things. And agreed to meet him in a public place that I knew okay. was covered by CCTV. Because, you know, you don't know who you're meeting these days. So he came along. I had the money for him. And he took the puppy out of the boot of his car. Yeah. And when I saw the puppy and he handed it to me, I, not to say I was shocked, I couldn't believe it. But it was tiny, and I mean tiny, it literally fitted in the palm of my hand. She was covered, I don't want to call her, her name was Bella. She was my Bella for a week. Bella, okay. And she was covered in dog poo. I'm trying to be polite about it. And I mean, I said, you know, look at the condition she's in. I brought, I had a packet of wipes in the car. Took out the wipes and I used a full packet of wipes trying to clean her up. Because the smell of her was dreadful. Brought her home, gave her a tiny little bath to get it up. But it was so embedded into her coat. I had to get like a little fine comb to tease the poo out of it. So I said, right, now cleaned her up, dried her off with the hairdryer at a distance. And she was lovely and warm, wrapped her in a towel, a hot towel, and made mm-hmm. sure she was warm, she'd warmed back up again. So I decided then I'd feed her. And, you know, the way you yeah. give puppies the nuts moistened in water, warm water, mm-hmm. she wouldn't eat it. She wouldn't even look at it. So I was trying to think of every other thing to give her. So I got chicken and I minced it and I cooked rice and minced the rice as well and mixed it. Still wouldn't eat it. And Helen had to take Bella to the vet. The Friday morning I said, I'm going to have to, I'm going to bring my own vet and get this puppy looked after. Brought her over to my vet. And the vet said to me, when I showed him the mm-hmm. documentation I had, there's absolutely no way this is 10 weeks old. It's roughly six, five to six weeks old. Okay. Shouldn't be even away from mummy. Shouldn't have been sold. Sorry? It's not legal, sure it's not. No, eight weeks old is the legal limit to sell She should still be feeding with her mother. Exactly. But... You know, I sent a video to your producer of the puppy yeah. with mommy, and you'll actually see the puppy going to try and feed off her. Yeah, yeah. So the vet put her on this tin food, and mm. she had to be fed, but fed by syringe every two hours, which meant I was up all night and I was all day. I couldn't leave her. I had to stay in for, you know, literally, I couldn't move outside the door. So this went on, and that was the Friday. She was back in the vet again on the Sunday. She was put on fluids, and she was put on antibiotics. She was put on, you name it, Joe. Mm. She was put on it. But still wouldn't. They were feeding her with a syringe as well. And she'd come around a bit, but fall flat then again. And it turns out she was hypoglycemic. Okay. So, you know, her poor How many, how many still... times did you end up going to the vet, Helen? Oh, Joe, if I showed you my bill, 
you wouldn't believe it. My vet bill is at 800 euros now as we speak. And So uh, bring, us, bring us down to where are we, Friday night? Yeah, I brought her back over to the vet because she was flat again and absolutely nothing would bring her around. Went over to my vet again and she said she needs to go back on fluids again, she needs to go back on antibiotics again and just, it's been a nightmare, Joe, an absolute nightmare. She was in the vets the whole afternoon up to 8 o'clock that night and I went over to pick her up again to bring her home again because I had to continue with the feeding all during the night and the vet decided that she'd leave the lines in her because she knew she'd be coming back in the next morning. Okay. And just as I was going to take her home, she fell flat. She went hypoglycemic again. And I just said, you know, enough is enough. She's too young to suffer this like this. If you saw her, Joe, it was heartbreaking to look at her. She was just, you know, she was just like a little rag. You know, the poor little thing was absolutely pathetic looking at her. So unfortunately, I had to make the decision to let her go. Well, that's Helen on the live line with Joe Duffy. And in the morning, going to make you an offer you can't refuse, Mob Movies. Has there ever been a more evocative movie theme than The Godfather? Because it instantly transports you to Italian America, to the 1950s, to New York. And it's quite sinister as well. Um, That's what Brian Redden and Larry Donnelly are here today to talk about. The sinister, the romantic, the intriguing genre of mafia films. Good morning to you both. Good morning. morning. What do you feel now when you hear that? I love it because I love The Godfather. And you're right, it's a beautiful, beautiful piece of music and it's kind of just synonymous with gangsters now and the whole the whole gangster mafia experience in America. But it's great, it's brilliant, very mm-hmm. evocative. So you're you're a fan of the genre. Do you I call am. it a genre, the mafia Absolutely. movies? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Gangster mafia movies, it is. a very, And it's a genre that you always associate with America, even though, you know, gangster mafia movies are everywhere. Like there's, there's, English, there's great English uh, gangster movies like Get Carter or Long Good Friday. There's brilliant Japanese gangster movies. We've even had a crack at it ourselves over here, you know, with uh, The Courier back in the day, which didn't do terribly well. But I always associate it with America because obviously the gangster experience, the mafia experience certainly is an immigrant mm-hmm. experience in America, you know, born out of bootlegging and all that kind of thing, you know. So it's um, it's very, I always look at America as as the place for, for really good gangster and, movies, and you know. Larry, you're more niche about this because for obvious reasons, <laughs> it's the Boston mafia movies that you're a fan of. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, The, the Godfather, Goodfellas, all those films, they're irreplaceable. They're, they're iconic in many ways. Uh, I think that the Boston Irish movie genre had kind of sprung up as a response to, I suppose, the Italian sort of stories, which were really set in New York. Uh, I think a lot of producers and writers 
is, et cetera, saw something of a gap in the market there. And certainly there is a fascination in the United States and I think in this country uh, with the city of Boston, with the characters and all the, the interplay between law enforcement and uh, organized crime, the interplay between politics and organized crime. And the reality with so many of these films is either they are real, that is, they're based on actual events, or they're pretty damn close to what mm. happened back in the day. Of course, with Boston, it's more intriguing because it's very much a community feel when it comes to Boston. It's smaller, so people know each other. Law enforcement know the guys who they're should be chasing, right? Absolutely. I mean, if you look at a film like The Departed, for instance, you know, where they show the very close ties between organized crime and somebody who was in the Massachusetts State Police, uh, that's not fiction. That's reality. I mean, that's uh, what actually happened in the city of Boston in the 1970s, 80s and 90s. So uh, it's a reflection of a very different era and Mm -hmm. a very different time. Well, look, we're going to focus on a couple of of issues here around the mafia films. And one of the best parts of a good mafia film, Brian, uh, is the nicknames. I'm going to take a clip from Goodfellas from 1990. There was Jimmy and Tommy and me, and there was Anthony Stabile, Frankie Carbone, and then there was Mo Black's brother, Fat Andy, Freddie No-Nose, and then there was Pete the Killer, who was Sally Balls' brother, and you had Nicky Eyes. And Mikey Franchese. And Jimmy Two Times, who got that nickname because he said everything twice, like. I'm gonna go get the papers, get the papers. Remember that. So Nicky Eyes, Freddie No Nose, Pete, Jimmy Two Times, Pete the Killer. That's a bad one. That's not great, is Pete it? Pete the Killer. Yeah. Now, what does he do for a living, <laughs> exactly. I wonder? He's not Pete the Killer. How plumber. did he get that nickname? <laughs> and Brian spoke about those early mob movies. In the, in the early days of gangster films, I think what's kind of interesting is that in the very early gangster movies, the gangsters were always portrayed as like folk heroes, almost like Robin Hood characters, you know? They were products of their environment, products of their of their upbringing, you know? They tended to be not quite good guys, but mm-hmm. kind of anti-heroes, right? But then what happened was, in 1934, Hollywood brought in what was called as the Hayes Code. And the Hayes Code was a strict uh, kind of code that was brought in, a moral code brought in to show filmmakers the way to make films, right? And, and in many ways, it was like like sex was banned, you know, so couples now had to sleep in separate beds on screen. And if they're in their bedroom and they're in separate beds, one of them had to have their leg on the floor. You know, and one thing that they did in particular with the Hayes Code, <laughs> this, this is all true. One thing they did with the Hayes Code was about gangster movies. They looked at gangster movies very, very closely. And they said, from henceforth, bad guys in movies, particularly in gangster movies, must be punished for their deeds. They can't get away with it. So that was the rule set up in Hollywood in 1934. And it kind of handcuffed, for want of a better word, gangster movies, because no longer could the gangster be the, the winner. No longer could he get away with it. Yeah. No longer could he be the hero or the anti-hero. He now had to be the bad guy. Mm-hmm. And he now had to be punished for his crimes. And, and from 1934 until about 1966, when the Hayes Code disappeared, that was the case. He was always a bad guy. And I think one of the best examples of a gangster movie, one of my favourites, goes right back to just after the Hayes Code in 1938, a film called Angels with Dirty Faces. And it stars, you know, the the, the iconic screen gangster, Jimmy Cagney. So in the early days, you had Edward G. Robinson, George Raft, Humphrey Bogart, and the king of them all, Jimmy Cagney. And in this movie, Jimmy Cagney kind of defined what a screen gangster should be. He had the real attitude. He was Irish-American. 
You know, he had to say, in the movie, he goes, what do you hear? What do you say? What do you hear? What do you say? So he had all these, he hitched up his trousers. You know, he had his holster on a, on a, on a gun holster underneath his arm. And he always had the jacket. He was always moving the jacket. So he was a real kind of, you know, a wide boy. And in this film, what's interesting about this is his name is Rocky in this film. You're talking about nicknames. So he's Rocky Sullivan. And he grows up on the wrong side of the tracks himself and a friend played by Pat O'Brien, who was Jimmy Cagney's real-life friend, actually. And uh, as they as they grow up and get older, Rocky becomes a gangster and Pat O'Brien, the other character, becomes a priest. So they're on opposite sides of the track, obviously. Now, eventually, Rocky Sullivan, who's admired and adored by the people of New York, this is another one that's set in New York, particularly young kids, they absolutely adore the guy. He gets caught and he's gone to the electric chair. And very famous, the priest, played by Pat O'Brien, comes to him and says, do me a favour, go out, yell it. He says to him, go out crying. Do not show these kids you're a hero. And he goes, can't do it, Father. I'm going to spit in his eye. going to spit in his eye. <laughs> you know, I'm going to go out like a hero. And he goes, please, please, please don't do that. So Cagney, who had portrayed a lot of gangsters up to that point, was afraid of getting typecast. But he took the role because of this. And like, it's not giving anything away because the ending of the film is well known now. But at the end of the film, when he's been taken to the electric chair, he suddenly breaks drops down on his hands and knees and in silhouette you see this fantastic shot it's directed by Michael Curtiz who directed Casablanca and Cagney grabs onto the guard's legs and starts to scream and cry for his life mm-hmm. and you don't know if he's doing if he's doing it for the cop so the, so the kids don't admire him anymore or if he actually broke and later on when the cops when the kids go up to the priest they go tell us it's not true father tell us he didn't turn yellow and he goes he did kids you know he goes let's say a prayer for the guy who couldn't run as fast as I could <laughs> And so ah. it's a classic gangster movie where he gets punished for his crimes. Yes. He has to get punished. Yeah. But Cagney set the benchmark for what a screen gangster should be in Sounds that movie. Great. And Larry has some reservations about the violence in some of these films. But one of the things that, that troubles me sometimes about the gangster genre, the only holdback is I'd, I'd have is sometimes the really gratuitous, over-the-top violence. I really have a difficulty with that. Yeah. So, for instance, uh, in Goodfellas, some of the scenes I just find very tough to take. Uh, and even The Departed, you know, some of the killings at the end, I just thought it was a little bit uh, much for me. What I do like to see, and I think with, with that film, which is an amazing film I'd highly recommend it to anybody is that little bit of redeeming quality or something there about the human spirit that's there that's you know maybe the person's a bad guy does lots of stuff but there's something redeeming that's what I always kind of look for Yeah I, I, I agree with you on the violence and I often have to look away uh, too but they're part and parcel of, of yeah. the genre I suppose Well actually talking about violence like in that movie we were just talking about Angels with Dirty Faces talk, talk about violence they actually in, in some of those scenes where Cagney's dodging bullets they were shooting real bullets So back in the 1930s, blanks and swabs were really expensive, but real bullets were cheap. So they actually used to fire real bullets during those gangster movies, actual bullets. So listen, Larry, you've mentioned The Departed, um, The Town and Mystic River. How do those two, in your mind, compare to, to The Departed? Well, uh, I would prefer the town out of all three of them, to be honest with you. But Mystic River, just on the nickname front, there's a great nickname in Mystic River. Uh, there were so many guys in this fictional neighborhood in Boston who were called Ray. And they were called Silent Ray, Skinny Ray, Irish Ray, Italian Ray. And then there was one called Just Ray to distinguish him from the rest of them, which I thought was, which I thought was brilliant. Um, Mystic River is a very, very dark, That's a hard uh, grim, watch. grim yeah. film uh, written by Dennis Lehane, who's a, uh, from Boston 
a very famous crime author. Uh, but the town uh, is uh, about the neighborhood of Charlestown, which uh, since, I should say, uh, has been gentrified beyond all recognition. You couldn't get a two-bedroom apartment there for any less than 3500 a month. But back in the day, it was a working-class small enclave where, uh, in many quarters, uh, robbing a bank was almost a rite of passage. Uh, and the town really encapsulates uh, that culture that existed uh, within Charlestown, as well as something of it known as a code of silence, where nobody ever uh, ratted out on anybody, no matter what. And there's even a famous scene in the movie where they're sitting there saying, to raising a toast to a guy uh, who's doing 20 years in jail, all because he wouldn't give the law, law enforcement what they wanted. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it captures really kind of um, that moment in history, that moment in a city uh, that I think is long gone. But I think now, it's... I was going to ask you that. Is it long gone? Is that over now? That is long gone. I mean, if you look at, na- you know, people here would have both personal experience uh, of neighborhoods like South Boston or Dorchester or Charlestown. Uh, and when they were gritty, when they had lots of character, when there was this kind of underbelly that was there that wasn't so nice, but in many ways had great character and great places. And a lot of Irish spent time there. Uh, and close-knit and families, et cetera, and long-term residents. Um, that has changed a tremendous amount. Gentrification has taken over. A lot of those people uh, have moved well away from there. So uh, the fabric of that uh, those neighborhoods is gone, but I think they're captured marvelously in these films, and I think that's why so many people are so fascinated by them. Yeah, and keep going back to them as well. Now, we want to talk about one man, Robert De Niro. Uh, mm. Next, you both picked what could be described as lesser known De Niro mafia films, Once Upon a Time in America and A Bronx Tale. And then, of course, there is Godfather 2, the best mafia actor of all time. No? Will you, well, Jimmy Cagney is your guy. Uh, Jimmy Cagney or Bogart were there way before him, I think. But but yeah, definitely uh, De Niro is, is superb and he really encapsulates that whole Italian-American, even though actually he has Irish roots, believe mm-hmm. it or not, Robert De Niro. But, you know, he's often cast in that role. Godfather, the first Godfather, obviously he wasn't in the first Godfather, but he's in the Godfather Part 2. He wins the Oscar for playing Vito Corleone. In fact, there's a bit of movie trivia for you. Two actors who won the Oscar for playing the same character. Hasn't happened before or since. Actually, it has once, and I think it's Henry VIII is a character where both, or two actors have won Oscars for playing the part. But Vito Corleone, Marlon Brando wins it for playing it in the first Godfather and Robert De Niro, De Niro. wins it for playing it in the second Godfather. Mm-hmm. So De Niro's brilliant. I mean, he's brilliant. The second Godfather is epic. The first Godfather is equally as good. It kind of They kind of fall off by the third one. But again, that came back. So the first Godfather was made in 1972 and that came at a time when this code is long gone in Hollywood. So there's a chance to show a mafia guys as uh, as almost noble, you know, almost honourable people. Um, And it becomes epic. It becomes a massive, big, you know, epic sprawling tale over multiple timelines and many countries. And it also gives a sense of where these guys came from, you know. So it goes back to Sicily and the films there and it shows, you know, the product, that they were a product of their own, of their society. Brian Redden and Larry Donnelly from Today with Claire Byrne. And in the morning, actor, comedian and activist Martin Beans Ward was talking to Brendan Courtney about his latest venture into the world of photography and his exhibition focusing on the travelling community called Through Our Eyes. So basically, it's it's a project to look at expressionism, um, I suppose, through an artistic lens. And what I was really interested in all of this was um, meeting different travellers from no, different different parts of, of the country with different perspectives on life and doing different things in life. Because I think one of the things that happens whenever a photographer goes within the community, it's either they're taking pictures of horses or scrap metal yeah. or when they take pictures of, 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 of people, they put loads of saturation to, you know, 
bring out the freckles more to give that quintessential uh, traveller look. When in actual fact, we are so diverse and different right across the country that that needs to be celebrated. And something that's come out of this project for me, because, of, of course, I, a lot of these people I, have, I had never met before, um, but one of the things that came out for me was this, this, there's a hidden conversation within the community and it's in around dual identity where, you know, a person might have dual parentage, one traveller, one non-traveller. And their voices tend to be lost in, in all of the conversations because it tends to be heavily um, focused on, on, you know, being a traveller. But but what about these people who, you know, end up being a, a cultural nexus point between the two communities? With that? So this is more of an exploration of, of the different types of people within the community. Um, and then, of course, there was Emma Ward, who's a wheelchair user. She's like a, a force of nature. She wants to be a journalist. And I think she will most definitely will be a journalist because nobody's going to stand in her way. And it was it was learning, you know, that people with, with you know, with, with different backgrounds or, or things going on, they, like they still have the same hopes and dreams as everybody else. And this project more or less just, you know, took a picture and, yeah. and showed that person and, like, and allowed them to kind of, I suppose, hold their platform. Yeah, and so you're providing a platform for that intersectionality where people are more than just one thing. It's great. Oh, absolutely, 100%, you know. Um, and, and again, with in the case of Emma, it challenged me because, you know, I, I arrived to the shoot and, and I took out the camera and my immediate thing was just to stand up and take a picture. And then I, I realised while I was looking down the viewfinder that it's the same old picture that's taken, you know. Yeah. The, 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 the able-bodied person is standing above and they're looking down. And for this, I wanted every single participant to feel powerful and empowered so for that particular shoot, I lay on the ground to get that different vantage point because, you know, it's actually quite important to put ourselves into a situation that each of the participants might might find themselves in, you know? Now, I know that you're pretty prolific on social media, but you did learn to take the pictures yourself with this project, didn't you? I did, yeah. Uh, although I did have some mentorship. Uh, Anthony Hawhey came on board um, to give me a bit of a pep talk and I remember the first conversation was because uh, he was he obviously wanted to know what he was working with and he'd been very polite about you know oh your your, your uh, social media pictures they're 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 they're, uh, they're good <laughs> and like I remember my first thing yeah but come here listen Anthony what's the story with this aperture stuff like how do I get that blurred background you know uh, so it was it was a baptism of fire but I actually think that that's the beauty about this initiative from uh, Creative Ireland uh, is that it, it gave me the opportunity to explore this and and the pictures that came out of it, you know, they're actually, I, I, I'm actually quite proud of them. Um, yeah. and, and they're quite beautiful. I, I would have sent some on to you there, Brendan. So I know, they're wonderful. Feel free to I compliment mean, you, we, me there. You, they're absolutely <laughs> stunning. I mean, Thank I, you. And you sent me a little video <laughs> secretly on private WhatsApp that I could have a look and I had a look at a couple of people and one of them actually moved me emotionally, I have to be honest, like nearly to tears. They're just so subtle and beautiful and kind and open they're just amazing congratulations yeah. it's a really so, exciting project so the vi- the video that you mentioned there so that that originally we weren't planning to do that but i felt as though you know arriving on the on, on the spot to do a photography shoot with some people who have never been in a professional shoot before i, I felt that there was an opportunity to capture the audio um, and the interaction, you know, asking the question, so how do you feel about your first photo shoot? And some of them said, you know, I'm really nervous. Uh, and others were saying, I'm really confident. And, and and to capture the first shot after that kind of interaction on the audio. So that's where the, the video 
basically is it's almost like a timeline of how the, the shoot went down and there's a little quote from each person there as well so it is it's quite beautiful So how did Martin select his participants? I would have known uh, one of them quite well I would have grown up uh, together Right um, but actually the call was put out in social media and it was open for everybody um, and when it came around to the selection process I wanted to have a good you know mix of demographic and I wanted you know as much as I could have a gender balance Um it just happened to turn out that there were more uh, women on the project than there were men. But I wanted to have a good geographical spread also. So, like, a lot of people would have messaged in and wanted to be part of it, and I had to kind of make a tough decision. You know, we've only got a certain amount of spaces, and I want to make sure it's a good mix of everyone from across the country that are doing different things. And and that's the process went from there. And, you know, in the conversation with the guys at the Photo Museum of Ireland, like we, we decided to go with these fantastic participants. And the idea of intersectionality, that we are all m- way more than just one thing, I think you've really tapped into something really enlightening right now, especially for the travelling community as well. It, it show, it, it, you're giving us an opportunity, all of us, everybody, participants, viewers, everybody, to see that everybody... The only thing that we all share is the fact that we're all different. hundred <laughs> percent. And you know something like going even beyond that, this this wasn't just me turning up taking pictures mm. of people. You know, the, like the, the important part of this project was that the participants felt part of it. So I, I, I sent them a task. Each of the participants had to take pictures themselves oh. on their phone. So how we went about this was I, I picked five different topics, you know, uh, things like send me a picture of something that represents freedom or you know, or you know, reflection, or or love, or happiness. Wow! And 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 in 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 preparation for this, we set them up. Well, the the Fort Museum and the Open Doors Initiative set them up with a workshop with award-winning um, uh, photographer Brendan O'Shea. So they were tasked with with taking their own pictures, but they were definitely tooled up before they went out to do that. And those pictures that the participants took will also be on display at the exhibition. It's amazing. Amazing. I mean, you, we spoke about this. We met randomly at Dublin Pride and we hung out for the day and you <laughs> told me about this project and I haven't stopped thinking about it since because I think it's such a great idea. Now, go back. Where did you come up? What was the the, the genesis of this idea for you? Well, I, I suppose I'm already doing a different project with the National Museum of Ireland, which is cataloguing and archiving the words of traveller elders. History, it's like it's 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 an oral history thing. But you know, even within that, there's one person, Tom McDonald, who does, you know, a tutorial on how to make um, one of those tin cups, step by step, and you know, things like where to buy the tin and how much it costs and what kind of tools you need. So it's it's a really kind of impactful video that's going to be left for the next generation. But then I was thinking, but where where are the next generation? You know, and where are their voices? And that's that's where this more or less came from. Um, and I wanted to focus on that age group between 19 and 36 or 37 mm. because after that, we know that life sometimes takes a different turn. So I wanted to kind of capture people why they still had hopes and dreams before they were battered away with, <laughs> <By life>. with <laughs> societal <laughs> stuff, you know, the boring stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's that's more or less where it came from. Um, now, there are several, we had several ideas, uh, to be honest. And as a creative person myself, like I'd have hundreds of ideas on the go in my head. Um, but this is this is the one that that we all felt just had a lovely kind of feel to it. And Martin spoke of the inspiring character of his granny Maggie. In two thousand and nineteen, I, I wanted to start recording her, you know, talking about the old days and singing her songs and stuff like that. Like I had a lovely touching moment with my granny before she went into hospital for the last time, 
and it was in around Christmas and she was sending out this um, prayer uh, to all of my followers. Um, it was basically, you know, don't do drugs, kids. And, you know, uh, <laughs> lo- lo- love, you, love your neighbour and all that kind of stuff. But she said something lovely to me afterwards. Um, she said, are you ever going to settle down? And I said, Granny, I don't know if you know, but I like fellas. And she said, I know that. <laughs> she said, but as long as you love yourself as much as you love the other person because Jesus is going to love you anyway. And I just felt like that, those little kind of turns of phrase, this is a devoutly Catholic woman, by the way, who went to Lourdes and Medjugorje. But the problem was, that was on an old phone. And I said to myself, you know what, I'm going to go along, save up and get a camera and come back and record her. But then before that happened, I got the camera and then she went into hospital, got double pneumonia and died on the 23rd of February, just before, the day before my birthday. And just a week before, everything started closing down around the country. And then within months, people were, were, weren't were even in a position where they could say goodbye to their grandparents, you know, at funerals because of lockdowns. So I felt extremely privileged that I was able to say that final goodbye. But then moving on from that, I was like, well, I can't record the stories and words of wisdom and love and encouragement from my granny. But there are many other grannies and grandfathers out there. So I set, I set foot then to to, I suppose, work towards that. And the National Museum of Ireland and I have to say Rosa Meehan uh, from the Museum of Country Life, they came together really well and they said, this is something that we'd love to get behind an archive. Tell me a little bit about your grandmother. Maggie Mon- Mongan was your grandmother, is that correct? Yeah. And tell me a bit about her life growing up. Well, she <laughs> she had a, a I suppose, a, a, what, what would be seen as a tough life now. But, uh, you know, when you're climatised to your environment, it, it would be just life. You know, there's no tough, there's no easy. Yeah. Uh, she would have been born in a tent, actually. Um, oh. Yeah. Um, yeah, tough. It's a really tough uh, life. Would have been born in a tent and eventually <clears throat> moved into, I suppose, a wagon. And then into a house. And I was actually asking my mother about that. What was the first? Because it was one of the questions I asked all of the people on the Oral History Project. Yeah. What, was it, what, what do you remember the first time you moved into a house? And they all say, you know, um, it felt great. It was like a palace, loads of room. And then my next question is, and what was it like for the first time you saw a television? Because these are all important questions. Yeah. And, you know, and my mother was telling me the first time the day had a television. Uh <laughs> Was it was on one of those RT channels, and there was like a scene where the man gave a kiss to a woman, and my mother said, "Well, that was it." Granny was out. She said, "Get rid of that joke. The devil is in it. The devil is in it." So she had to get rid of it, you know. Um, but that's the kind of but that's the kind of person she was. She was devoutly Catholic, but at the same time, the most loving and caring person you could ever meet. And even when she was, you know, towards the end, struggling and her her joints were sore, and she was still knitting. Or, or is it crocheting yes. blankets uh, to send over to the Chernobyl children? And she's been doing that since the first appeal came out from Chernobyl. So that'll tell you how long she was doing that. And she used to send the blankets out and the ones that she didn't send out, she <laughs> sold. And the money she got from that, she sent over. Like this is this is a charitable, loving, caring woman. And I can guarantee you she wasn't the only woman of that generation. And this is not just travellers, let's face it. Like uh, our, our elderly are more or less forgotten in this country. Yes. Uh, and beyond just, you know, cataloguing uh, the words and, and stories of, tra- of traveller elders, I'd love to go much further and just try yeah. and capture the words of elders across the board because 
they should be cherished and held on to and treasured for as long as we have them. Yes, they educated us and built our roads and gave us our freedom. Yes, they, we owe them so much. Mm-hmm. I couldn't agree. So the, 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 the projects are really inspired very much by your love for your grandmother. I love that. And coming back to the project, what stories do the pictures tell uh, of the photographs that you saw, do you think? I mean, I've seen some of them and they're very diverse and it's, mm-hmm. it, there's nobody... It's some of them are sexy, some of them are yeah, gorgeous, yeah. some of them are powerful, you know. Yeah. And, and, and I tell you what, from what I got of, out of it, it was the moment where all the lads were more or less kind of confident, a little bit shy at first, but, you know, they really grew into it. Yeah. But the, the women... From from what from from the, the majority of the women that I that I spoke to, there was a shyness, but also there was like um, a reluctance to flaunt their beauty, actually, and I think that's quite sad, because yeah. ah, from from this is only my opinion now, but I do think that there's there's pressures within the the community towards traveller women, um, from our own community, and also obviously. <laughs> outside of us, you know, there's definitely some pressures there, but for very different reasons. And I do think that if we're going to talk about, you know, the pressures that's laid on traveller women or LGBT travellers or, you know, travellers with disabilities, we need to understand that that happens within the community also, unless we start calling that out and start creating routes of freedom for these people within their own community. We can't really keep banging on about the oppressors outside of it, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and or the racists or the people that might discriminate. If we, if we have it, within our own community and we are more or less stemming the rise of these confident people within our community and we're not making the future seem welcoming to them or we're not allowing them to, you know, yeah. I suppose be liberated, even sexually liberated. Like, I'm not talking about having sex. I'm talking about feeling sexy or sassy on a picture and yeah. not, not being worried that you're going to be shamed or embarrassed. Yeah. You know, this is, this is what it's about. And one of the participants in the exhibition was Helena Power. Um, so yeah, I suppose like Martin was saying, there was a call on social media, and and I seen the call and I just went for it. I suppose, and I would have always had kind of an interest in photography, and it was something that always kind of intrigued me. I suppose, and so. What was it about I, the call out that you saw that you thought I could do that? I think it was just asking, um, like it kind of just fit in. I, I fit in the box, really, or, or <laughs> you know, so to say that, like I. I um I was the age and I just yeah I suppose I had the interest in the photography part of it so were you nervous were, were you nervous to take part or were you confident? No, I was nervous. Um, I to be honest, <laughs> from the first day I suppose that I would have would have seen the call out. I I wasn't really expecting to be chosen. Right. Um, and I think in the email that I I sent into to Martin, I actually said something like, "Look, if I don't suit the fit, it's, it's grand. Like, don't worry about it." Yeah. Um, and I I wasn't. I definitely wasn't expecting to be chosen. But I was delighted then that I got um, a chance. I suppose to take part as well. And how was the experience for you, Martin? Showing up, asking how you're feeling. I've seen some of the the video, the, some of the video. But Helena, uh, where where are you calling us in from, and what what do you do at the moment? Uh, I'm calling in from Kilkenny, and um, so I'm originally from Erlingford and County Kilkenny, born, bred, and reared. And I am working as a community development worker in the Kilkenny Traveller Community Movement. Helena Power talking to Brendan Courtney in the morning about the exhibition Through Our Eyes. And that's it for Playback Daily. So mind yourself till next time.